You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Hey guys, welcome back to Land Lakes Podcast. We're super excited to bring you another podcast this week as Matt and I sit down with Dr. Michael Chamberlain to talk about wild turkeys and specifically talk about wild turkey research, but most importantly, correlate that research with in the field land management strategy. So if you followed along over the course of uh, the last few weeks as we've talked about habitat and then jumping back to podcasts we had last year uh, at the National Wild Turkey Federation National Convention, we had Dr. Michael Chamberlain as well as Dr. Brett Collier on talking about all their research and various things they've learned. Well, we're taking that and spinning it into in the field management strategy. So let's take what we've learned in their research and and how would we implement that as a land manager. So um, I think this is going to be probably one of my favorite podcasts ever in regards to what to do for wild turkeys. Um, A lot of really interesting points that he makes about um, strategies that he would use, things he wouldn't do. Um, Hint, hint, wink, wink. You got to you got to stay tuned for that one because that's a that's a good question and, a, and an even better answer. So um, before we jump in, though, I want to remind you guys about our habitat workshops that we have coming up in June and July in Alabama and Michigan. These are in the field, and um, there are training sessions where we will cover uh, in outdoor classroom everything from all the different techniques we use in timber stand improvement or timber management to improve not only um, the health of your forest but habitat ways to utilize different strategies to 
reach your goals as quickly as possible. We talk about edge feathering. We're going to talk about food plot management. We're going to talk about uh, invasive species control. All the things that we talk in talk about week in and week out out of um, habitat management is going to be at, at our habitat workshops at Michigan and Alabama in June and July. So uh, we encourage you guys to give uh, to look those over. That's at shoplandandlegacy.com. Field event tab, you can click on them and see all kinds of different stuff. It's new for us, um, but it's a great way for us to bring uh, and basically hit different regions of the country. And, and so you guys that listen each week who may not have hired us for consulting can go um, can go and take that information you learn there and go improve your farm with it. So please check it out and enjoy this week's podcast. All right, guys, welcome back to Land Legs Podcast, and we are super excited to jump right in headfirst into this podcast. We had this man on last year, and uh, we couldn't wait to bring him back this year when everybody started talking, thinking turkeys. So without further ado, Mr. Michael, Dr. Michael Chamberlain, thanks for joining us. Not a problem, guys. Glad to join you. And I've got Matt calling in. Uh, Matt will probably, uh, he's jumping in from teleconference as well so it's all three guys merged in together but let's just go right to it in case people haven't heard last year's podcast um mike if you don't care share a little bit about your background and how you got into dealing with wild turkeys yeah so i grew up a suburban kid uh weekend warrior dad if you will um hunted every weekend i could and ended up going to to school studying wildlife science and I uh, was fortunate enough to, to to do okay in school and uh, get some opportunities to go to graduate school and I actually started studying turkeys as a grad student on a project back in, in Mississippi back in the early 90s and I've actually been studying turkeys every year since. I, I left graduate school and was fortunate enough to be hired in an academic position and um, in a research position and been studying turkeys ever since as an academic as well. So I'm, I think I'm going on about my 28th year now of, of studying this bird. Oh, wow. What Over the course of the years, what has been some of your research that you've done that you've been most, I guess, shocked by or fascinated by? Something that you were like, you know, I had the assumptions that a bird with the, the turkey was like this, but it, it it turns out that was false. Is there anything in the past that kind of earth-shattering for you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I'd say the one that sticks out the most to me is um, some work I actually I actually published that we now know is, is false. <laughs> um, <laughs> I... Um, I did some work back in the nineties that seemed to kind of suggest, which some other researchers had suggested as well, that, that hens would go and, and spend some time selecting nest sites and they'd go pick the best spot and they would visit those sites before they started laying eggs and et cetera. And with the advent of GPS, we, we now know that they don't do any of that. They, uh, they literally don't visit the nest site until the day they lay the first egg. Um, in fact, most hens don't go anywhere near their eventual nest site 
until the day they lay that first egg. So that, that kind of blew my mind and it, and it actually refuted something that I had published previously. And, and not that I was, you know, not that I was wrong per se, meaningfully. I, I just was inferring things based on the technology we had at the time. And the GPS telemetry has kind of revolutionized the way we think about the bird. Yeah. So I guess this is an assumption that I'll make or what kind of over the course of years of, of mainly just hunting the bird, do you feel in all your research, and I'm, I'm going to make you kind of, I'll try to pull you away from a, a real, uh, I guess, profession professional response, but do you feel like turkeys, based on that, I mean, I feel like as a, as a, as a hen and getting ready to lay eggs for the next generation, she would put a little bit more thought into it than, than what it sounds like she's done. Do you feel like... For the most part, turkeys are kind of just going with the flow, if you will, and there's not really a whole lot of forward thinking of I'll nest there and I'll I'll fly down and by tomorrow afternoon I'll be over in this field. I, I think the data suggests that they just are going about living their, their lives and their bodies physiologically tell them, hey, it's time to nest, and, and they go find a spot and they, they lay eggs. Um, we, we have actually found, which is really, to me, is super interesting that, that most hens prioritize survival, their, their own survival. And that, that makes sense that this bird's supposed to live a long time and they're not supposed to be like, say, bobwhite quail that are, you know, super prolific and, and geared towards making reproduction work one year because they may not live to their next year you know turkeys aren't like that so it does seem that most hens prioritize their own survival over over reproduction which is which is pretty interesting to me yeah for sure um and and i believe some research has suggested too that when a hen is successful one year in raising a brood or having a successful nest site she tends to be successful in the following years whereas those who were unsuccessful may continue that trend from year to year. Is that right? Yeah. 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 That's, that's, we've absolutely shown that very clearly. Um, that in reality, a really small percentage of your hens in a population contribute most of the reproduction that you see. Hmm. Do you think those are, those hens just have this um, more, motherly instinct potentially that they exhibit over the other ones that are more of the day-to-day hey survival is more of my um contribution to the population whereas there's other hens that say hey i'm a little bit more motherly i'm going to put a little bit more energy into a a um, nest in a great location or just have more instincts to protect the poults once they've hatched that's a tough question it it looked it looks like that just some hens are wired differently to, to, to do all of that. And we don't really understand that equation, but it just looks like certain hens are wired to do things differently. And that confers them a better advantage when it comes to, to hatching a clutch. Um, What that is, we don't know. We, we haven't really been able to measure it, but 
yeah, some hands are just better at their jobs than others. I guess that's the, the easy way to put it. Sure. Gotcha. Sure. Okay. Well, and, and as we're looking at a wild turkey over the course of the year, can you break down basically habitat features um, that that they would need to survive and basically sustain a population within a year? So I'll list out the ones that I know most common, and if I miss any, you can fill in. But like brood-rearing habitat, nesting habitat, roosting areas, loafing area what are some of the other i guess areas that a turkey would use from day to day or season to season um in the course of a year that's i mean that's pretty that's pretty much it i mean it, if you if you kind of look at a bird's annual cycle and how they go about their day you know turkeys are they sleep in a tree for a reason um you know roost are are critical sites for this bird because they they're safe presumably although they're not always safe on the roost but you know those are places where they feel safe and and they can protect themselves from inclement weather they can protect themselves from predation uh from us if you will at at times the the other thing that that we've seen with with turkeys that you know during their day-to-day activities they spend a lot of time loafing around and when they're not loping around, they're obviously foraging, but both of those places they need to be able to see. So this is a bird that has a periscope type head, right? And that head is, I mean, they, they make a living by being able to see trouble before it gets to them. So that's, that's what drives Turkey habitat is, is the ability for that vision to kick in. And, and then during the reproductive season, you know, it, if your hens particularly, it's can I hide and and not die while hatching this clutch? And we, frankly, we see nest sites that are all over the map as far as what they look like, but but we don't see as much variation in brood cover. Brood cover is pretty, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, it you need succulent herbaceous plants that are going to hold a lot of insects that are going to be uh, structured in a way where poults can move around. I, I kind of give people the analogy. If, if you want to know if you're looking at turkey habitat from an adult's perspective, just sit down on your knees. And if you can see around you, then so can they. If you want to look at the world from a poult's perspective uh, or nesting hen, get on your belly and look around you and that's that's the way they see their environment so if you're trying to hide and you can lay on your belly and you can't see around you then so can she and conversely if you're a poult and you're trying to move around you lay on your belly and you look around and and you can't see how to move then neither can they so um it kind of ultimately all boils down to you stick all that mess that i just said into a pot it's basically early successional plant communities. That's that's turkey yeah. habitat, whether whether it's in a forest or under a forest or in the wide open. It's it's early successional plants. Hmm. Well, that sounds like that could go hand in hand with some other species that people love to manage for and grow, like the white-tailed deer. <laughs> oh, Matt, you got a, a question follow up that I thought I heard you chirp in. You know, I think. 
I'm definitely in agreement. Um, I, I love hearing that. I love hearing the research side of it come in and suggest the same things that that we often discuss, and that's diversifying the habitat and having multiple stages of regeneration uh, through the use of prescribed fire and just managing different types of plant communities, both in timber settings as well as, um, let's say, old field settings. Both of them are certainly applicable, but I think what you hinted on <clears throat> and discussed is, you know, as a as a landowner speaking to landowners right now you know it's important to be able to change your perspective and sometimes that literally means just taking a knee in in the landscape and seeing and deciphering looking at the structure of what's out there or what's not out there um if adequate cover for plant communities exist and and sometimes literally just need to get on the right level with the pulse or with the wild turkey to be able to decipher that. And I think a lot of times if we do change that perspective, then you're going to see that things are probably inadequate. And, um, you know, that, that's what we see across the, across the board and a lot of places. And I'm just glad to hear you're saying reinforcing the, the need for early successional plant communities. And that, like you said, comes from my gosh, it could be in timber. It can be in fields. It can be in semi open timber. Um, so there again, it's diversity. Yeah. Yeah. It's diversity and it's often driven by disturbance as you both know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, the, the plant communities that this bird uses and most, not in all, but in most systems is disturbance driven. I mean, it, this bird benefits from, from things that we do to the environment that stimulate the seed bank, that stimulate vegetation, whether it be fire or, timber thinning or mechanical treatments. I mean, you, you name it, anything that, that stimulates the seed bank is generally going, generally going to be positive for this bird. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so stepping back when we're talking brood rearing, I think it's important, hopefully for people, listeners, I think a lot of times people wouldn't really know, uh, what they're, they may have it on their own farm, but not really be able to say, oh, okay, I didn't realize that was brood rearing habitat or that was nesting cover. And it sounds like the both they both can be very similar. Um, so is there any way, how would you define the difference between brood rearing habitat or brood rearing areas versus nesting areas? Generally with our nest, with our nest sites, now, I'm kind of speaking in generalizations here um, because every site we go to is a little different, but we've tracked and you know, we've got over, gosh, 800 nests we've looked at at this point um, and hundreds of brood sites where these broods have, have taken poults and spent time, whether they were roosting or whether they were hanging or, you know, moving around during the day. And, the gen the general trend is with nest sites you tend to see um more woody cover than you do at brood sites so in other words think a sapling uh, multiple saplings shrubs things that are more likely to hide a bird versus brood cover which is almost without exception open plant communities like where a, a, a brood hen could stand there and clearly see in every direction what's what's happening now again there are exceptions but 
Um, that's generally what we see. The nest sites tend to be super variable as far as what's there, but the trend tends to be there's there's often pretty dense screening cover on at least one side of the nest. There's usually some kind of opening where she can get in and out of the nest. So, words, one direction may be more open than the other three because she that's where she comes and goes from. Whereas it, and some you can imagine you flushed hens off a nest or seen nest sites. Some of these some of these places are fairly open, but some are super super thick. But brood sites are not. Brood sites are, they are open, sometimes wide open, particularly where where birds may roost. They may tuck a brood up against uh, some logs or some debris, wide open hardwoods. Uh, they may forage in areas where there is standing grass, but they can move around under it. So think like ragweed and some species like that that grow a little bit taller, but tend to be associated more with bare ground under them that's that's the type of cover we see with broods i'll be honest one of the biggest things we see with broods which i think is pretty interesting we see them using fallow food plots a lot mm-hmm. yeah. um and y'all y'all have seen this that you know you plant wheat oats and clover or something in the fall those plots come up they're beautiful we get about right now they start getting kind of rank deer stop eating them fast forward two months from now and they're brown senescent stalks you know they're dead they've seeded out they're starting to lay over but you got this green clover that's under there we see a lot of brood use of those those plots and if you kind of get out and look at it from their perspective it makes sense because it's pretty open on the ground and there's a lot of bugs. There's a lot of insects moving around in those areas. Um, but there's enough cover with those stalks of wheat or oats or whatever to kind of protect those poults from raptors and birds of prey. So it kind of makes sense. And, and we do see, we see broods when they have those, those, you know, those areas available to them. We do see a lot of use of them. I think that's a, I think that's a great point. I, you know, there seems like a lot of people may tend to think that, oh, if I'm not actively managing a food plot, then it's not it's not a benefit, right? But in reality, here's a perfect scenario of where poults that need very specific um, habitat to be able to bug and um, have that high insect diet they've got that in a fallow field, a fallow food plot that you didn't come back and plant in the spring and just left it alone and um, now it's providing really critical habitat so that's that's good to hear for the people out there thinking oh i'm behind the eight ball if you're not planting the spring not necessarily the case yeah a mess up you yeah. can say i planned no. it yep yeah even a failed yep. food plot would be would be pretty applicable too with the amount of potential bare ground that it would offer and the foraging aspects of it yeah we actually see i've, I've seen several brood sites where where broods were actually using it wasn't just what was planted in the plot it was actually some of the herbaceous i mean a food plot guy would or gal would call it a weed but (laughs) those uh those those natural plants you Mm -hmm. know will often take over particularly late winter if you've got heavy browsing pressure from deer 
you'll actually see more weeds in your plots than than the forage stuff you planted and that's not always bad because it gives structure and and Amen. and provides green forage you know absolutely yeah that's uh you, you said that weed thing because you see it in the deer world all the time where it's like how do i control these weeds and you end up looking at the picture and you're like it's ragweed why are you wanting to control that yeah yeah and ragweed's actually a you know high quality browse species in a lot of areas too yeah for sure great upper great structure yeah do you think going back to the the, the nesting cover? I, I I'm trying to picture because this podcast is really going to key in on for guys that are landowners and taking your research and applying it. Do you feel like? I guess this is an assumption of mine. I could say that where I see guys trying to manage for deer, turkey, quail, and all their native species, but going, okay, how can I make better nesting cover? How can I make better um, broodering cover based on what I have now? And I would imagine, based on all the travels Matt and I do consulting, that it seems like probably the open areas that could be great brood rearing oftentimes are too thick in grasses. And then the nesting cover where there is saplings and shrubs, they typically get that the, the, the fire or disturbance has not occurred on a regular basis where there's almost too much woody vegetation where it's dense and, and the, the hens nesting will likely only use the fringes. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yes, I would absolutely agree with that. And and in my travels across the country, and, and admittedly, most of my time is spent in the southeast because that's where most of my research is right now. But but I travel all over the place in the spring to, to turkey hunt, so I see a lot of different areas, probably not as, as many different sites as you guys do, but, but I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I, I what I tend to see is that areas that we think that's good nesting cover is pr- it's, it's too thick. It's yeah. actually, it's too woody. The stem density is too high in some areas that's combined not only with high understory stem density, but basal area that's too high as well. Um, and then brood cover, I, I see a lot of areas where I'll, I'll talk with somebody and say, Hey, what do you think? And they say, well, that, that's pretty, it looks pretty good. And I'm like, well, that's Bahia grass. Mm-hmm. That's a monoculture Bahia grass or that's fescue or whatever. And, and those are thatch forming grasses. And that's not, that's not brood cover until they're older poults. And, and that's, that's a key that I, a lot of people I, I, I think don't recognize is you got to get them through the first couple of weeks. And once they're, once they're two or three weeks old, they are, I'll say this. And and I mean it literally, they become like plastic. I mean, poults and broods, they'll use all sorts of different stuff because they're growing bigger. They can fly, they can roost off the ground. They eat a bunch of different stuff, but when they're, three days old or five days old, they are insect eaters. They're small and they need to be able to move around. And the only way to do that is to have open conditions on the ground. Think dirt, think bunch grasses that are like andropogons and and species that are going to provide structure and not this dense mat of stuff. Yeah. And if, if you do, then you give them a shot because that's when most broods are lost. Those, I mean, mm-hmm. we see 
overwhelming loss is the first five to 10 days. If they get up to about day 14, they're in pretty good shape. So people need to think it, it doesn't have to be dog hair thick to hide a nest. Literally knee, knee cover, like knee top is, hmm. is more than adequate. And brood cover, you need to be able to lay on your belly and look around and be able to move. Hmm. But what about, can you talk real specifically or, or quickly, I guess, about that spatial um, aspect of nesting cover and then brood rearing cover? Because we're talking about, you know, this this three, five day old poult. They have to be able to mobilize from the nest to this brood rearing cover. So I, this kind of speaks to... Um, the need for the diversity across across the property and and even bare dirt so like how how important is it to have these types of habitat um specifics in close proximity to get them to that let's say 10 day 14 day old size yeah that that's a good question and we we actually just published some work that specifically hits on that we we found that broods that have to travel more than about 800 yards during the first three or four days of their lives, they get smoked. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if, if you've got a brood that hatches right here and she has to move that brood 1500 yards away over the next two or three days to, to get to a place where she thinks she can make it work the survival probability of that brood is literally almost zero. Whereas if she can keep them relatively close to where she hatched, but not at the nest site, obviously they, they move away from the nest site. Um, but if she doesn't have to travel that far, that confers her brood much higher success. So it directly speaks to the diversity issue. We need, we need these habitats, these structures, these plant communities. We need them juxtaposed. We need them right beside each other. And we need to be thinking smaller patches rather than, hey, I've got 500 acres of nesting cover. Well, you don't need 500 acres of nesting cover. You'd be better off to have a certain amount of acreage and nesting cover and then brooding cover right beside it. That would be a more ideal scenario. Sure. So in my head, I'm picturing like, yeah, you basically instead of making a five course meal where everything's spaced out on the plate and different, you're basically dumping it all in and making a casserole where there's a little bit of everything all around. Yeah, and you know, guys, I mean, early researchers and scientists, Aldo Leopold noted this back in the nineteen thirties, you know, I mean, that diversity is is key and and we've known that. I mean, we've known it for a lot of species and um yeah, I mean, the ideal scenario is these birds wouldn't have to travel far, and the way to to keep their home ranges small and keep their movements down is to ensure they have all of their needs in a smaller area. And, and patch diversity and and diversity of vegetation that's that's one way to do that. Okay, there you go. So let's go right into as we're basically all that research that you've done and what we know now. How does a landowner with, let's say, 50 acres take that information and use it to where he can say he's actually making a difference for the wild turkey? 
Good question. Um, I kind of, I kind of take two, two slants. Um, when I get, when people ask me this, landowners ask me this, the first thing I'll tell them is take a look at your property and see where your strengths are. Where do you think based on what you know about turkeys or, or what a biologist or somebody can tell you about turkeys? Okay. Where are my strengths? Maybe your strengths are in, you've got some pretty solid winter habitat. Let's say you got 50 acres and most of it's hardwood. You got a lot of, of mass producing oaks and you see turkeys every, every winter. Well, is there anything you could do to improve habitat during other times of the year? Maybe the answer is, okay, well, I've also got the chance to produce some brood cover because we, we tend to see, at least in the South, that most nesting occurs outside of hardwood areas. Most, most nesting occurs in either mixed or, or pine dominated type sites. Um, so, okay, I've got pretty good winter habitat. I don't have nesting cover, but maybe I could do some things to improve brood cover, such as releasing some of my co-dominant oaks, improving forest structure, you know, understory structure, making the understory more diverse. Maybe I, I do some timber stand improvements, et cetera. The second thing I tell that person is, okay, well, where, where around you, what neighbor or what neighbors have property that addresses your weakness. So in other words, where are your birds going when they disappear? It's a common thing. And I'm, I know you hear this too. I had birds in the winter, they disappeared. Well, where did they go? They went to one of your neighbor's properties. What does he or she have that's your weakness? And could you work with them to address those weaknesses so that you both end up the better for it? And then if you keep doing that, and you make a bigger and a bigger and a bigger footprint, you are going to have a positive effect on your local flocks because the footprint gets large enough to where you may only own 50 acres, but you, your mindset and your, your abilities and your knowledge have impacted a, a much larger footprint because you're willing to reach out to your neighbors. That's usually how I answer that question. So if you're in that boat of you know smaller scale, less than 100 acres, it'd probably be best to kind of form some sort of, well, we know it'd be better even if you were a thousand acres to form some sort of cooperative to work with your neighbors to where you're all trying to, uh, maybe you have the information, but educate them on what needs to be done, how to make the biggest impact the quickest way possible, and then address the gaping holes in, in your habitat that could that need to be filled for, for the turkey. I completely agree. I, I think, I think cooperating is the bottom line is not very few people own enough acreage to really contain a flock of birds all year. So, and I know I'm, I'm again, I'm generalizing, but not, there aren't many of us out there that own that much property. So those of us, and I don't own any property except what my house is sitting on, but if I were a small private landowner, I would be absolutely looking at ways to work with my neighbors in hopes that we could all see a greater positive impact. And even if I, let's say I own 5,000 acres, if I could identify a neighbor that also owns some property and we could 
make that footprint 6,000 acres, well, that's better. If we can make it 10,000 acres, that's better. Um, and, and you guys see this in your line of work. I mean, I, I can point to numerous examples of these, of these co-ops where folks put their heads together and they may not always share the exact same common vision, but they all want the same thing mm-hmm. and they're all willing to invest resources in it. They're seeing positive effects of those types of, of, of situations. Yes. I, I think that's definitely true. When you, when you look, when you look, let's say beyond your property and extend that, uh, that arm out there and say, Hey, this is a landscape issue and you address it from that landscape issue. The, the results I think can be certainly astounding. Um, so what, what would you say is the typical, and if the research is from the Southeast, that's totally fine. But would you say is the typical range of a, of a flock um, of turkeys throughout an entire year. What is the landscape usage that you're seeing through GPS? We see about on average, okay, so I'll start in the winter. The winter is by far their largest home range sizes. We see pretty extensive movements. As you can imagine, it's highly variable across flocks. You know, certain, this flock of hens, for instance, may use a thousand acres in one month and the next flock uses 5,000 acres. Um, but think thousands of acres for winter habitat. They, they are covering some ground. Exceptions would be bumper mass crop years. Mm-hmm. We see much lower home range sizes, but in a typical, just an average year, winter is the time where home ranges kind of explode and birds start moving around in large groups. They eat a lot because there's a lot of them and they're looking for acorns for the most part or waste grain, depending on where you live in the U.S. And then right about now, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in early March and right about now we start seeing these groups are splitting up and their home ranges are starting to shrink quite a bit. We'll have the typical hen may use during her pre-laying period, which is kind of what we call right now, which she's split up from her big winter flock, but she's still hanging around with a few hens. They'll use hundreds of acres, maybe up to a thousand. And then when they start getting to the laying period, of course, they're kind of tethered to that nest site, but they're still using hundreds of acres. And then of course, when they get to the incubation, they're, you know, they're using them a handful of acres around their nest site, then you see that it kind of reverses itself during the summer. If they hatch, then they use progress, you know, a few acres the first day, a few more acres the second second day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If they fail, then they they typically their summer home ranges are just a couple hundred acres. They don't move much. They hang around with each other. They loaf a lot, as you can imagine. They find shade. They find areas that are cooler. Toms, on the other hand, toms are crazy. They uh, they will man, they will cover some ground in the winter, and then right about now, they're as you know, they're shadowing hens and they're they're identifying places where they can go and display, and their home ranges will shrink down to thousand acres or so during the spring and then come summer they shrink dramatically once breeding season's over 
they get back in those little small groups of toms and just like hens, they're just using a couple hundred acres. So that's, that's what I hear from a lot of landowners too. It's like, well, I didn't have birds all spring and now all of a sudden I, I'm seeing turkeys on my property. Well, all they did was shift their home range a little bit and they ended up on your property and, and you'll probably see them consistently. If you see them at all during the summer, you usually see them consistently because they aren't using much space. And then all of a sudden come winter, they like explode and they're like, well, now they're gone again. Yeah. Cause they may be three or four or five miles down the road on your neighbor's property because again, their home range is dramatically increased during the winter. So to answer your question, literally everything from a few acres when they're incubating to a few thousand acres at a time during the winter, that's what you see. <laughs> gotcha. So let's imagine that you're a, a landowner, 500 acres, and you're taking your research. What would be some of your top practices, uh, whether it be prescribed fire, or timber stand improvement, or uh, timber operation? What are some of the, the your favorites that you would most likely utilize to to make habitat for the wild turkey? Dude, I'm a fire guy. Um, <laughs> I, I, I I, I love fire, man. And, you know, this bird is inextricably linked to prescribed fire in the South. So I, I tend to be a, a pyro at heart, but I do see a common problem across the region in many places relative to fire. And that is one, it's not applied frequently enough Two, it's often applied repeatedly during winter which, which tend, tends to shift the plant community more towards woody plants. And three, I see a lot of fire used in stands where the basal area, the, the stocking density is too high. Yep. So you don't, you don't really get the benefit of the fire because all you're doing is burning up needle cast. Um, so I, I, I'm a fire proponent. I'm a proponent of using fire at an appropriate scale, obviously, which we've, we've documented pretty clearly is is in the 50 acres no more than 500 acre range um at least in pine dominated areas and i'll i'm also a fan of you know expanding fire windows don't don't just think you know january february think march think early april depending on where you are and, and where your nesting is occurring think september october i mean think think outside the box and and use fire if the habitats that you have will support the use of it um of course timber stand improvements and like we just talked about i mean <clears throat> basal areas often i see basal areas often a lot higher than it should be and so if if you're if you're in a situation where you can do some timber harvest and, and some thinnings, things that are going to open up the canopy and put sunlight on the ground, that's generally a, a positive for turkeys. If, if you can manage what comes up in the understory. Mm -hmm. Another big one that I, I use myself and I, I, I've got a bunch of folks that, that I help with their properties that I encourage is disking just, a a light spring or a fall disking to stimulate plant communities on the edges of food plots or transition areas, places where you don't really need to plant per se. All you need to do is scratch the ground a little bit and, and stimulate the native plant community. 
some of the species we've talked about, like ragweed and some and some other native forbs and legumes, just go nuts, as you know, when you when you disturb the ground. So those those would be my would be my biggies. All right, Matt. Dare I? Yeah. Dare yeah, I? Well, I, I just ask you what practices you would utilize most, Mike. And I, I'm so happy. I didn't even hear you mention trapping. It seems like you have a bigger emphasis on habitat management. Yeah, and you're gonna get me. You're gonna probably get me shot here, but um, <laughs> well, we'll get shot with you because we're here every week this, saying this. This is a safe no, place. This is a safe. Place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I mean, first and foremost, and, and I, I've said this in other forums, and and I'll say it here, and I'm not ashamed to say it, nor will I shy away from it. Is you know, trapping can be a beneficial practice. It can be effective at improving nest success and fledgling survival and in, in birds in general. But if you're thinking about trapping, be thinking about other things. Be thinking about more, not just hoping that it's a silver bullet because it's not. Be thinking about ways that you could implement habitat improvements while also enjoying the art that is trapping if, if you want to trap go for it but first sure. and foremost we need we need people to focus on on habitat first and foremost and then you can focus on all sorts of other of other issues but when i travel around i yeah i see a lot of predators but i also see habitat that in in a lot of cases is really poorly managed and and some of that is not from intent, yeah. Some of that is just from a lack of knowledge or a lack sure. of information available, which is why you guys do what you do is just, you know, to help people understand how to do it. And a lot of times, if people understand how to do it, they'll they'll do it. Particularly if they're vested in this bird, and there are tens of thousands of people, you know, of landowners that are. Yeah. Well, so so with Very well with those practices. Uh, it sounds like you kind of have a pretty good idea, but are there practices that you see people not doing enough um, in in general? And you can talk uh, southeast and midwest basically with that uh, and anywhere there's turkeys. But And then do you see other practices that people utilize too often that aren't really ever going to get them the results that they're expecting? Is there anything that really jumps out at you? Yeah, yeah, I one thing that jumps out at me that's used too much, I'll start at the end, is a bush hog. Yep. Um, man, stay off the bush hog. It, it doesn't doesn't have to look clean and manicured. And I know I like my yard to look great too, but but sometimes staying off the bush hog for a little a little longer period of time can be helpful. Um, I, I I tend to see one thing that's used. Uh, how not enough would be timber stand improvements, thinnings, and and ways of opening up forest structure where you can get sunlight to the ground. I, I tend to see, and may, maybe I'm just paying more attention than I did 30 years ago, but I tend to see that basal area across many, many thousands of acres of land is way too high. We've got pine forests that are a hundred plus basal area that are that are in short rotation type forest 
you know, that's not, that's not ideal turkey habitat. So I end up often recommending almost every property I visit, frankly, almost every one I visit, I'll end up saying the basal area is too high. You, you know, consider, consider doing some timber work, consider getting a, you know, consulting with a forester or, or identifying ways where you could improve forest structure and not just in pines, but in hardwoods. And that, that's another thing I see that is often a misconception is that hardwoods can't be managed with cutting. Mm-hmm. And that, and, and as you both know, that's not true. You, you can, you can go into hardwood dominated stands and actually improve acorn yield and structure with some careful, with some careful harvest. And you can also generate some good, you know, revenue as well. Um, so I think people get lulled into this custodial management of hardwoods. In other words, let's just leave it alone and it'll be fine. And, and sometimes that's just not the case. I think, I think that's great, great advice. Um, a lot of times in our discussions, we're, we're rather than discussing basal area for a landowner, we may reference percentage of a canopy opening in a hardwood setting. Mike, what is, what would you say is a, is a really good ideal um, percent of canopy opening for turkey habitat quality turkey habitat? If you if you're experiencing, you know, if you're going to follow up with fire um, and manage that understory, what kind of percentage of open canopy would you want in a hardwood stand? Who that's a tough question. And I'm sitting here when my, my gonna, wheels are spinning a little gonna bit. He's going to say it depends. Because, How about this? North slope versus south slope. Would you have a different percentage-wise on those two sites? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you've got, you know, you got one site that's considerably more productive than, um, than another. That Those south-facing slopes, as you know, are, are going to generate different plant communities and and they're going to react to disturbance a little bit, a little bit differently. I, I'm not going to say it depends, but I'm going to say it. It, <laughs> it <laughs> that's depends. Fine. Um, that's fine. What, that's fine. That's our common answer for us. Yeah, what I have seen is that in areas where sweet gum is problematic, mm-hmm. the whole equation changes because, if as you know, the way that plant sends out the way its root system works and the way it's these parent trees populate the landscape it's a different ball game when you open up a canopy and you start disturbing sweet gum because it gets really mad um so i I think when when i look at areas and i start thinking about okay what's going to happen if i tweak this if sweet gum is one of the plants that i'm dealing with (laughs) then I think a little bit differently because I've seen such issues with it when there was disturbance that allowed it to go nuts, particularly if, if fire is not used in a way that we can continually cause it, you know, burn the, the sprouts back. Gotcha. Um, that's one issue. The other issue I've seen is in areas where you have Japanese stiltgrass. Oh, yes. Uh, I we honestly that that has been like the story of <laughs> the last two months from Adam and I working. It's just we're seeing it popping up in so many different places, and I and I think that it really has an impact 
on uh, loafing areas for turkeys. We're seeing a lot in the, the wet soils, the bottomland, where nice breeze would blow through, but a little bit of sunlight, and that stuff goes crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's terrible. And, and we actually, this is a bit, it's a bit sad, honestly, but we actually see brooding occurring in stilt grass areas um, preferentially. In other words, they go to areas with stilt grass, and that's alarming to me because <laughs> if they're going to stilt grass areas, that means that the native plant communities are not producing enough forage to support them, and that is, to me, is a huge flag. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, when when I start thinking about disturbance and stilt grass, there's that's another plant that kind of throws a, do a you wrench f- in the ointment, if you will. Do you feel like that stilt grass, the uh, birds going to bug and and stilt grass? Do you feel like in those sites that it's more common, or that it's because the native vegetation is almost the the, the herbaceous plants is almost non-existent? Or is it because yeah. it's the, okay? Yeah, I, I was hoping that people weren't yeah. saying, "Well, it sounds like Japanese stilt grass is doing more than the uh, than the natives," but it's just that the natives aren't there, and the stilt grass exactly has done okay yep. in that closed canopy forest, and so therefore they're using that. Okay, that's exactly that's exactly right. So yep. the native the native species can't the the canopy's too closed, mm-hmm. so they can't respond. There's nothing to stimulate them in the seed bank but still grass can make a living in those shady kind of dappled sunlight areas. So, you know, a a hen goes, well, well, hell, this is what I've got. It it looks better than anything else. So I'll go there. And then I look at it and think how, how frustrating and sad that, that this, this stand is so poorly managed that that is the the primary. Yeah. That's the best they've got. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we see the same thing with of different uh, wildlife species with deer and areas. Uh, let's just say they're riddled with bush honeysuckle. I was thinking autumn like, olive. Autumn olive. Or, yeah, I'm saying, same thing, a woody a woody shrub. It's like that's the best cover that they have. And literally it's a non-native invasive that's completely taken over the understory. And the future is not bright for that site as a landscape, um, land stewardship mindset, land ethic. It's, it's, uh, it's frustrating to see, but that's the state of – Sometimes the, the properties we visit are the properties that uh, people are, are, are owning, and we're, we're seeing this across not only deer, but obviously wild turkeys, too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mike, I know we don't want to take up any more of your time. We know, you're, you're, you gotta, you know you've got other appointments, so we appreciate you coming on. I, I think that a lot of people out there listening to this hopefully took away and now can have uh, an idea of what they need to be doing. Basically, it sounds like cutting disking, burning, and uh, adding disturbance any way you can. That is the key, man. No question. Well, there you go, Matt. Um, <laughs> we'll just pound, just keep driving that nail home each and every week because that seems like the going trend that we're doing here. So, Mike, appreciate coming on. Not a problem, guys. It's good being with you. Thank you, sir. Take care. Yes, sir. Yeah.